It wasn't a crocus, says Sarah. She's right. <laughs> Elliot, you're fired. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean that. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, welcome to our online guests. It's a joy to worship with you this morning. And I want to begin by saying that the, what we commemorate this morning is the reason why we are here at all. This is why we're here. This morning's events are the reason why the church exists, why we gather and worship, why we give our time and resources, why we believe the things that we believe. And it's all based on something that happened that first Easter Sunday morning many years ago. You see, we Christians make a claim, an outrageous claim, a world-changing claim that a man came back from the dead. That's what we believe. This man, Jesus, lived, taught, and performed miracles in Judea some 2,000 years ago. He himself said some outrageous things. He even claimed to be God in the flesh. And his disciples who heard him say it were pretty weirded out by it. They didn't know what to do with this information, but they received it. But his actions and teachings were so compelling that they chose to stick with him. He came into our world. He fulfilled prophecies of God's judgment, of God's rule, of God's desire to make things right. But those hopes and dreams seemed to die violently and suddenly when on the Friday before, Good Friday, Jesus was arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Romans, and crucified as a political insurrectionist. His death ripped away from his followers with terrible suddenness and finality. Now for the remainder of that Friday and all that day Saturday, his disciples wallowed in fear and loss, the sudden loss of someone you've known and loved and spent time with. And since he died so close to the beginning of the Sabbath, because the Jewish Sabbath begins in the evening, the Jews can do no work on the Sabbath. He was buried without his body being cared for or prepared in any way. He wasn't washed. It wasn't covered in spices. It wasn't wrapped. So some of the women who loved him deeply gathered themselves together in the early morning hours and made their way towards the tomb to look after the dead body of the Lord they loved. It's a tender moment, isn't it? And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. The words will be on the screen. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women who were with them telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. We get to these verses, and I think we could feel perhaps as confused as the disciples and the women may have felt. Let's go um, verses 5b through um, 7, this kind of middle thing. Uh, the angels say to them, he is not here, he is risen. What on earth do these words mean? How do you receive them as the first tears? He's not here, the body's gone. He's been disappeared by somebody? What's happened? It's unthinkable that something else might have happened. Your first thoughts are, he's been 
Someone stole him, right? Who has risen and who's done the rising? And the angel goes on to explain in the next verses, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands and sinful men and crucified, and the third day rise again. And suddenly it clicks for them. Jesus said this would happen. And then it did happen as he said. And now, therefore, it's the unthinkable. Death has been undone. Somehow death has been reversed in the person of Jesus. Now, the Jews in the ancient world had an understanding of resurrection and of the afterlife. They had some ideas of these things going on. And that men and women would rise again to face God at the judgment on the last day. Resurrection means the judgment of God is happening. And if Jesus has resurrected, then this means it's kind of the end of the world in Jewish theology. But it's fair to ask, how can we believe this? I mean, we live in a scientific age, don't we? We know a lot more than those ancient bozos knew about things. We know that dead people don't come back to life. So how can we believe these things? Let me give you some things to consider. We think we know more, but in the ancient world, death was actually a lot closer to people's lives than it is to us. Let's take some mild examples, right? Uh, You go to the meat market or you go to the grocery store and your animals have been already cleaned, killed, and prepared for you so that you don't have to be aware of the butchering process at all. But in the ancient world, butchery was everywhere. You saw death all the time. Our infant mortality rate is quite low, but in the ancient world, it was extraordinarily high. That's why people's life expectancy rates are typically rated so low in the ancient world because so many infants died. And you'd be around death all the time because there's no, there's no birth control. There's no way of controlling these things. And children are born and die frequently. Death visits your home. The dead are around you all the time. We, don't, we can't send them off to a home. You can't put them away so they're invisible in the last years of their life. No, they die in your presence, in your rooms. You are close to death. And also, you're under the power of a political power that uses death as propaganda. And so you walk down the streets and you will see death. In fact, think of the Roman world. Entertainment was watching people die live, right? You go to the movie theater and you watch pretend death. The Romans went to the circus and they watched real people die. Death was a game. So you think that you know more about death in the ancient world? I propose to you they knew a lot more about death than you do. And they knew how final it was. There's no confusion on their part about how death is the end. And so they knew that Jesus had died. Maybe you say this, could they have made it up? Maybe they just made up the story. It's a funny thing about Luke's gospel. Luke and the other gospel authors clearly state that it's a group of women who are the first to learn that Jesus is alive. It's a group of women who are the first to show up because, well, quite frankly, the disciples were cowards and had all run away, and the women were there to love their Lord. Okay? That's in the text. It's in the subtext, I should say, what's going on. Okay? But here's the thing you've got to know. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony wasn't worth very much. It just wasn't. Man's testimony, worth something. Woman's testimony, eh, not so reliable. Now, if I'm in the ancient world and I'm going to make something up and then I'm going to risk my life holding on to this, in fact, I'm going to wager my livelihood and my future and all my future health on this thing. If I'm going to make it up, I'm not going to make it up and say, yes, some women told me this thing happened. The only reason I would do that is if that's actually the way it happened. Of course, there's more. 
Jesus doesn't just vanish into thin air. He appears to the disciples in person many times. He proves to them he's not a ghost. He says, reach out and touch my hand and my sides. He eats fish. One of my professors in university used to say, what happened to the fish? It's a good question. What happened to the fish? Okay. One by one, 10 of the 11 remaining disciples, everybody but John, every single disciple but John will die a violent death never recanting the story about Jesus. Now, if you've got a conspiracy and you've worked together with a group of people to lie about something, right? You're going to defraud people. You're going to make up a story. And one by one, your fellow conspirators start getting threatened, tortured, and murdered for the conspiracy. Somebody's going to crack. Nobody holds on to a lie like that through their entire lives. But not one of these guys cracks. Not one of them. And that says something. So what was it that changed these men and women? What made it possible for them to withstand torture and death and intimidation without ever changing their story? In fact, they dig down even deeper and more become more irritating in it. And the answer is, the resurrection happened. They saw it. Now from that time in the early church, in an unbroken chain of generations, the risen Christ has made himself known to people. People like you and me hear the good news that Jesus died for your sins and came back to life. People like you and me hear this news. And you know what? People like you and me believe that good news, that Jesus died for our sins and came back to life. And then God's Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. And then we become part of God's church and we find ourselves transformed by this news. In an unbroken way from that Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago till now, this has been going on in people's lives. On and on and on. And touched by this resurrection life, we become bold, fearless, powerful, and even irritating. So one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Peter and John are preaching a sermon in front of a crowd right after the resurrection. The Pharisees try to shut them up. And here's the Pharisees, what it says. Now, as they, the Pharisees, this is Acts 4.13. As the Pharisees observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There's something irritating about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. Oh, yeah, you remind me of Jesus. That's a kind of holy irritation that we should strive for. People should be irritated by us because we remind them of Jesus, not because we're irritating. All right? Sorry, Sarah. She said it first. I'm just responding. Okay? So the resurrection life is what's happening. There's this life of Jesus growing, manifesting, transforming within us, and it's the continuing presence of Jesus within the church. One of my favorite stories of this continuing presence is about a man named Polycarp. He lived in the second century. That's uh, between 100 and 200 of the years. He's reported to be a disciple of the Apostle John. So he spent time uh, with John and learned from him. Now, the Romans were really frustrated with this new Christian religion. You'll be surprised at why they were frustrated. They thought we were atheists. This is the early charge of the Romans against the Christians. You atheists. And the reason we were atheists is because we rejected all the other gods of Rome. And because we rejected all the other gods of Rome, we wouldn't pray for the emperor who was a god. We wouldn't pray for Roma, the goddess of the state. And it made us look like we hated the state. And so there was some anger and frustration. Now, it made it easy to find Christians because all you had to do was summon them, ask them to burn incense and pray to the emperor. And if they refused, you found your Christian. 
And Christians were eager to, not eager, but they were ready to refuse these things. Polycarp is one of these people. The Roman proconsul summons him, threatens him with death by either fire or being eaten by wild animals. This is not a fear that many of you, well, maybe in Lynn Valley, some of you live with the fear of being consumed by bears. And you have some hints of what this is like. Except that in the Roman world, of course, they kept wild animals. They were still wild. And they'd starve them so that when you threw an innocent human into the Colosseum, it could be fun. And again, death was a sport. You could watch this happen. Just go and see it. And so people knew what was happening. And Polycarp is here. You're going to get burned to the stake or you're going to get eaten by wild animals. And the proconsul says simply, take the oath, curse Christ, and you can live. All you have to do is deny him. He's in his 80s. What does Polycarp say? 86 years I've served my Lord, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? After the interrogation, Polycarp is burned alive. Now, what gives him the strength to face horrible death with peace, without fear? unless it's the resurrection. Now, I can go on all morning. I can tell you stories of the men and women whose lives were changed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's the most startling fact, the most astonishing claim, and it's the reason why on Easter morning we say these words, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and you say? He is risen indeed. This is why we say it. Because we stand in unbroken continuity with this thing that happened 2,000 years ago and continues to be renewed and continues to happen in lives as we move forward. I want to spend some time talking about one of these men in the church who was touched by the power of the resurrection this morning, whose life is a testimony of its power to transform. And I want to spend some time talking about a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer today. And this is especially appropriate because today, April 9th, is the 78th anniversary of his assassination by the Nazis. 78 years ago today, he was hung. And I want to tell you the story that brought him to that place and why it's important for us to know. One thing that's funny about Christians is that while we're alive, you know, we celebrate our birthday. Isn't it nice to celebrate your birthday when you're alive? My birthday's next month. I suppose I'm looking forward to it. But after we die, do you know what you celebrate? Your death day. Because that's the day when you finish the race, when you've entered the presence of the king, when you've finished having fought the good fight. For a Christian, our death day is more important than our birthday. And today is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's death day. I want to take some time to talk about his life because he can help us reflect on the power of this resurrection. So let me give you some details. He's born in 1906, okay? He's right away, he's born to a wealthy family in Germany. He's upper middle class German. Now, right now, you've got all, all of you have ideas about Germany and you need to forget most of them, okay? because they've been framed by 20th century history. But at the end of the 19th century, German was at the absolute height of European culture. Everything from Germany was the best. The best theologians, the best philosophy, the best culture, the best music. Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Kant, Hegel, Schleiermacher. Go through the list. You've got all these names who were the top of their game, and people wanted to be around them. Germany was a cultural powerhouse. And so Germans, or there wasn't any like, quite a German state at that time, but people from within this kind of Germanic region were very proud to be German, and you know what? They had every reason to be proud. Because they were at the cultural apex of Europe at the time. 
Now, this excellence of what it meant to be German was soured, of course, by the events of the First World War, one of the most meaningless and violent and stupid, wasteful wars in history. Utterly wasteful. And this began to sour the story of the German people. And in the wake of that conflict, as many of you will know, at the Treaty of Versailles, huge financial burdens, punitive burdens, were placed upon the Germans because they became then the scapegoat for the war that pretty much all of Europe had participated in. And so Germany took the blame. And so now you receive a very dangerous set of conditions. You have a people who know that they have cultural heritage and feel very strongly about being who they are, and yet they're being oppressed by circumstances outside themselves. And this creates toxic conditions to be subverted. And this is what begins to happen. Now, Bonhoeffer grows up in this time. One of his older brothers is killed in the First World War, so this is close to home for him. And so young Dietrich is considering, at his young life, he's considering a, a career in theology. This doesn't mean that he has faith. It may sound weird. How could you consider a career in theology without having faith? Well, I could, I could name a couple people, but the point is not that. The point is that at that time, um, to be a minister or to be a professor was to be an employee of the state. You had a state job and a state pension. It was cushy to be a pastor at that time. And so it was a steady job. And so Bonhoeffer was considering this as a lucrative career. And theologians and clergy uh, had a kind of status in society because of this role. Now, Bonhoeffer begins his studies, and he meets the who's who of the theological world. The best of the best are his teachers. And he shows himself to be a theological wunderkind. He's a wonder child. In fact, he writes his PhD thesis when he's 21 years old. Okay? It was amazing. I finished mine when I was 40, and I felt behind. Okay? At this point in his life, Christianity for him, it really is a set of ideas, really rich ideas. He's thinking about them, but they're very much in his head. They're propositions to be considered and related to the philosophical and religious questions of the day, and that's how he's approaching these things. So after his first PhD, he has to write essentially a second PhD in order to be allowed to teach in the German academy. The Germans are really serious about this. You have to write two of them. Okay? And after, before he takes up a teaching post, he takes a trip to America. He wants to see the world. And some really interesting things happen in America. He goes to Union Seminary, which at the time was one of the most prestigious seminaries in the world, and he is unimpressed by education in North America. Unimpressed. He's not, he's not happy with it. But two other things happen. One of them is he begins worshiping at a historic black church in New York City called the Abyssinian Baptist Church. So here's this young German high theologian hanging out listening to African-American spirituals and saying, I like it. And second thing he does is he takes a road trip with a friend. They go to Mexico. And while they're in Mexico, the friend challenges him about the scriptures, and he begins to fall in love with the Beatitudes, especially the seventh. Blessed are the peacemakers. And from this time on, Bonhoeffer will be a pacifist because he's convinced of this word. Some powerful things are happening in his life. Something, not immediately, not suddenly, but over this course of two years of time, something happens where the stuff in his head gets rattled down into his heart. And Bonhoeffer returns to Germany a changed man. He believes in a way he didn't believe before. Meanwhile, the Nazis were on the rise especially young men disaffected by the economic conditions of Versailles, feeling like the world's against them, but they have a lot of potential. They think the world is mine. I have to take it for myself. And they start to move forward aggressively. Hitler arises in this movement. He takes advantage of it, along with his brown shirts, his growing team of political cronies, and eventually his stormtroopers. 
Now, you need to know that the Nazi rise to power wasn't just political. Now, they fought a propaganda war with the Jews as a scapegoat, right? A lot of the rhetoric was, well, you know, the Jews are the problem. The Jews are the source of our economic woes. And so there was a kind of propaganda business going on. But there was also a culture war in the universities where they worked through the intelligentsia to promote what they called the Aryan ideal, right? What makes us great is our whiteness. Everything not white is a liability. They began to advance these things. And you didn't know they waged a religious war in the churches, and they used the system of state churches to manipulate the teachings of the church because the overlaps between state and church made this possible to begin to push these things through. And so the pronged attacks of Nazism were the political stuff, and there was religious stuff, and there was academic stuff. It was a whole-scale movement. One reason why Nazism succeeded was because, in large parts, both the church and the academy supported it. They were tied in with the culture in this way. So Bonhoeffer has been changed in his heart, and he returns home to Germany. It's a Germany that he deeply loves, but he can see is tied up in an ideology that is deeply troubling. There's something wrong going on here. So what do you do in that situation as a faithful Christian? You begin to oppose the Nazis as best you can. You begin to take up ways to oppose them, especially as they try to influence theology. Now he's really invested in this stuff. What happens first is the Nazis pass a resolution. It's called the Aryan Clause that says that no person of Jewish heritage can serve as a minister in the state church, which is pretty weird considering that Jesus was Jewish. Okay? But they've pasted this over and they've forgotten it. And the faithful Christians are saying, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And they begin to oppose it. They oppose it. People like Martin Niemöller, Helmut Thielicke, and Karl Barth, they gather to oppose this. And they promote a document called the Barman Declaration, which takes out this Aryan clause. So there's pushback. Bonhoeffer and his fellow pastors begin to form a group. They call it the Confessing Church, a church that confesses the truth of Christ, that won't confess Nazism from its pulpits. We're going to be committed to Christ and Christ alone. And they refuse to cave to the dictates of politics and culture. How do the Nazis respond? They kick all the pastors out of their churches. If you are a state-pensioned pastor, and because of your convictions about the gospel, you just lost your job, what happens to you? Are you going to join the military and fight for the Nazis? It's a terrible situation. And so Bonhoeffer and his group respond by forming a group called the Pastors Emergency League. They gather money and funds to help support these faithful men who lost their positions because of their commitment to the gospel. We need to do something to support them and their families. In the meantime, faithful pastors begin to wonder, where am I going to go to get educated to be a pastor? Especially if every educational institution is fully in the grip of Nazism. And so Bonhoeffer forms an illegal seminary at a place called Finkenwalde. And they gather together and they have a formative time where they shape one another in the work of the gospel until that gets shut down by the Nazis. Now, as the war begins to shape up, every able-bodied man is conscripted into military service. And if you're not in a protected position as a state pastor, then basically what happens to that whole group of young seminarians at Finkenwalde is they're all conscripted into the army and they all die on the front. It's one way to get rid of your opponents, right? Make them serve in your army. Bonhoeffer's a pacifist, though. How is he going to get around this? And so, remember, upper middle class, he's got family connections. He's able to get a job in the intelligence service, okay, where he secretly begins passing information to his church contacts in the West. He becomes a traitor to the state. It's a dangerous place to be. 
Now, eventually what happens is Bonhoeffer gets involved with a group of German patriots, all anti-Nazis, who begin to believe that the only way to save Germany is if they take out Hitler. He becomes part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, Bonhoeffer, the pacifist, convinced pacifist, is thinking, I have to help assassinate someone. And actually, he takes this so seriously, he wonders if he is forfeiting his salvation in doing it. That's how seriously he took his ethics. But he thought, if I lose my salvation, but if I can save the people of my nation, it's probably worth it. So he will sacrifice his life to save his nation. The plot fails. The conspirators are captured, and Bonhoeffer will spend the rest of his life in a place called Tegel Prison. In prison, he writes, plays, prays, reads. He sends letters to his fiance, works on a book on ethics, Attempts to prepare for life after the war. How do you rebuild a nation after your nation has committed the sins Germany has committed? He doesn't even know the extent of Germany's sins. But he's trying to think ahead. How do we become, how do we be the church in the wake of something like this? Now, in the background, the Nazi authorities are working out just who is involved in the plot to take Hitler's life. They find some secret documents. And Hitler learns about the names of each of the people involved in trying to assassinate him. And some of you have seen that movie Downfall where Hitler loses it, right? Some of you have seen the re-edits where Hitler loses it over all sorts of other funny things. He lost it over Bonhoeffer and ordered that Bonhoeffer and his compatriots be liquidated. Liquidate them. Now, this is April 1945. This is the very end of the war. I mean, on April 30th, Hitler will commit suicide. We are that close to the end of everything. It's over. There's so little petrol in Germany at this time that they don't have enough to evacuate their troops from the front, but they find enough petrol to power a van to carry Bonhoeffer so they can kill him. That's how petty this is. It's more important to kill my enemies than to save my troops. Remarkable. He spends his days, last days, at Flossenburg concentration camp. And there in the early morning of April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged and cremated. And his ashes were scattered with the thousands of victims at that camp. How did Bonhoeffer die? Cheerfully. Joyfully. There was a British soldier named Payne Best. We'll put this up on the screen. In the camp with him, and this is what Payne has to say about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was all humility and sweetness. He always seemed to diffuse an atmosphere of happiness, of joy in every smallest event in life, and of deep gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom his God was real and ever close to him. His fellow prisoners saw that there was something about him. There was life in him. One of the ways he showed this was he refused to hate his guards. He had pity on them instead. And just days before his execution, he was asked to lead a prayer service. And he said, well, not all of these people are, you know, this guy's Catholic and this guy's this thing. Are you sure you want me to do this? And they said, no, 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 Pastor Bonhoeffer, you have to lead us in a prayer service. And one of the texts of that service was 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is fresh in his mind. The hope of what God is doing. And later that day, Bonhoeffer would speak the very last words to his friend Payne Best, and they were these. He says, this is the end for me, the beginning of life 
And this image here is the burial ground at Flossenburg where his ashes are. I've told you two stories this morning. I told you the story of our resurrected Lord and the story of a man who was transformed and changed by that resurrection power. And I want us to say, how can we learn from this? So there's four things to say about the resurrection this morning. Thing number one, the resurrection changes our attitude toward death. The resurrection changes our attitude toward death. Most everybody on earth is afraid of death. Whether you're afraid of actually dying or the afraid of process of dying, there's some fear. Okay. The finality, the closure, the sense that there's absolutely nothing more. There's a funny thing, though, is that our fear of death culturally is sometimes masked as a pursuit of a kind of life, grasping at whatever experience we can have right now. I mean, this is something what's behind the phrase, you only live once, right? You've got to take it. You've got to suck up all that you can right now because this is it. This is one of the reasons, I think, why people document all of their experiences on Instagram. It's not actually about life. It's about the fear of death. If I haven't documented it, did it happen? Do I exist? Am I real? Can I prove it? This is why I think there's so much pressure to travel and see the world. You fear of missing out on everything around you. Oh, no. This is why people become so anxious when they feel limited in their behavior, especially their sexual behavior, because they only have this life, and if you take that away from me, what else is there to live for? It's fear. Death is final. If death is final, then this life is all there is, and I've got to take as much of it as I can before I die. The fear of death motivates so much of how we live. Listen for a moment to what Pastor Bonhoeffer has to say about life and death. He says, where death is final, earthly life is all or nothing. Defiant striving for earthly eternities goes together with a careless playing with life, anxious affirmation of life with an indifferent contempt for life, an anxious affirmation. Look how alive I am, except I'm terrified of dying. It's not at peace, is it? So when death is final and life is all there is, there is no supernatural other world, is there? We're materialists. And that materialist life indicates a kind of worship of death and idolization. And in the grip of that fear, we become so anxious to live life that we miss out because we're afraid of it. We sour it. We're desperate for the next experience, the next best thing, the next partner to make us feel like we're truly alive. And what I want you to hear is this. If you will receive Jesus, he will liberate you from the fear and tyranny of death. Second thing, the resurrection changes our attitude toward life. Changes your attitude towards life. Listen again to what Pastor Bonhoeffer has to say about the resurrection life. He says this, the resurrection has already broken into the midst of the old world as the ultimate sign of its end and its future. And at the same time as living reality, Jesus has risen as human. So he has given us human beings the gift of resurrection. A gift. Thus, human beings remain human, but in a new resurrected way that is completely unlike the old. We're us, but not us. Something new has happened because of the life of Jesus planted in us. In a world saturated by death, Jesus, Lord of life, enters. He's killed by the world, but death can't defeat him. Instead, he absorbs death into himself, takes it upon himself, so that death no longer has power over him. And in his resurrection, he offers to share with you his life, a life that cannot be conquered by death. And this is transformative. Transforms our living, transforms the parameters of what's meaningful, 
transforms what's significant because of the value of the resurrection, preserving or prolonging life is no longer our focus. Why do you worry about tomorrow? You don't have to. You're free. Because of the resurrection, getting ahead of the other guy no longer matters as much. You don't have to beat other people. You don't have to be better than other people. You get to be who you are. I quote with some advice um, Mel Gibson's William Wallace. Every man dies. No every man really lives. In his kind of semi-bad Australian Scottish accent. Our life has the potential to be transformed when the author of life takes up residence in us. And what I want you to hear is this. If you will receive Jesus, he will enliven you by his Holy Spirit. Third, the resurrection changes our attitude towards truth. Changes our attitude toward the truth. Once again, we live in a materialist age. The reigning idea is that this world is all that is, all that matters. But if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection of Christ Jesus is true, then the supernatural is real. It exists above and beyond our material reality, making inroads and uncomfortable dictates about how we live this life. It's funny because this image of the resurrection and truth shows up in two kinds of people during Nazi Germany. Members of the German academic elite, the powerful, the intelligent, people with degrees, men whose faith was of the mind and whose confidence was in their nationality, they crafted a Christianity that fit them. It looked a lot like them. They tailored it to suit. In fact, it looked a lot like uh, it was a very German Christianity, right? The suit fit comfortably. You didn't need any restraints on the awkward bits of our lives. It was made to order. They were the best thinkers in the world. How could they be wrong? So they combined their best thoughts with their sense of German nationalism, and the result was a theology that catered quite nicely to what Nazism wanted. And Nazism, of course, was a theology that had everything to do with just this world. That's why some of the Nazi leaders killed their kids when they knew that it was over. I can't imagine my children growing up in a world without national socialism. That's... That's the logic of hell. That's the logic of this world is all there is. It's terrifying. So they had no resurrection. And because they had no resurrection, they had no conviction. And because they had no conviction, they were able to easily swayed from the truth. On the other hand, you had men whose faith was not merely of the head, but whose convictions about the resurrection were in their heart. It spanned both head and heart. And these men knew that the resurrection stood against Nazism, and they had deep convictions. And because of the resurrection in them, they were willing to risk everything to fight it. Now, let me put a pin on this. Most of you are eager to fight, just, fight injustice. You want to be on the right side of history. You want to oppose the wrongs of the world. You don't like the things in the world that are wrong, that people get hurt, that are clearly wrong. But if you do not have a conviction that transcends the world, you will be impotent to change the justice of this world because you're part of it. Microplastics are everywhere, right? They're in our fish, they're in us, in our blood, and you know what? You are part of the evil of the world like microplastics are part of our ocean. It's in you whether you like it or not. What can be done to fix this? You need something from outside the world, and the thing from outside the world is the resurrection of King Jesus. It is the only hope for justice. Without that conviction, you will fail. So the resurrection transforms our ideas to truth. And what I want you to hear is this. If you will receive Jesus, his resurrection will illuminate your mind. He'll illuminate you. 
Last thing this morning to say is that the resurrection changes our attitude toward the lost. Changes your attitude toward the lost. And let's just go back through these three things momentarily. If you have a transformed attitude towards death, if you're no longer in the grip and power of death, you want other people to be free too. I want you to be free. And if you've experienced the life of the resurrection, oh, I want other people to have life too. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, you find a great restaurant and you've got to make two choices. Either I tell everybody about it because I like the restaurant, or I don't tell anybody about it because I don't want to have, like I want to be able to get a table there, right? Okay? But this kingdom restaurant, the restaurant of the resurrection, the more people go, the better it gets. Let's get everybody in there. And when you've experienced the power of the resurrection truth, and when it transforms your mind and gives you a sense of conviction, you want other people to have that illumination as well. It transforms your heart for the lost. You don't come out guns blazing with conviction. You come out with pity and a sense of, oh, I want you to know the life of this Lord that I know. Will you share it with me? I'm going to invite our musicians to the platform at this point. And as we prepare for our time of responsive worship, um, I want to talk about faith. Christ on the cross did a work that has the effective power to save the whole world. He paid for sin. He made a way so that you could be right with God the Father. And you know what? If salvation is like a bus, there's room on that bus for everybody. But there's one catch. You do have to have a ticket. Anybody can get on the bus, but you have to have a ticket. How do you get that ticket? You surrender your life to Jesus. You admit, I don't have it together. I'm a sinner. You ask for his help. You say, I want what you did on the cross to apply to me. And he will send his Holy Spirit in you. And you will have salvation. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Now, Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your death and I thank you for your life. I thank you for the power of your resurrection that has impacted us, our world, and your servants like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If this is news for you today, that you can believe in the power of Jesus and receive salvation, I want to encourage you to pray that right now to offer your life to him and say, Lord Jesus, I don't have it together. I'm a sinner. And I want what you've done on the cross to apply to me. Give me your resurrection life, Lord. And in his name and by his power, I pray that he save you and seal you for the day of his return. As we sing now, um, brothers and sisters, we have prayer ministers available for you. And you can seek them for anything. We have Kathy and Dan and Leah and Daniel, I think, yes. Leah and Daniel are going to be upstairs and find them. They're here. They're here to pray for you. Uh, And they'll pray for you for anything. Do you need to hear from the Lord today? Be here from the Lord. Have you made a commitment to Christ? Let them seal you in it. Is there something going on in your life? Let them pray for you. Uh, Would you please stand and we'll sing together now.